start with the Gospel of Mark. All right. Uh, looking at the very top of the notes here, uh, page, it's, it's titled page number six. I don't know. That, that, don't worry about that. Uh, there. The author is a man named John Mark. You guys see where I'm at? In the middle of that page there. How to read, understand, and apply the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the author is John Mark. We call him Mark because there are too many Johns in the New Testament. <laughs> it's probably true, right? He lived in Jerusalem, apparently. In fact, the early church may have met in his house. We don't know that for sure. He's a cousin or nephew to Barnabas. The Greek word could mean either one. We, we think he might be a nephew because we think he's a generation younger than Barnabas. But that doesn't rule out him still being a cousin, right? You could be a generation younger and still be a cousin uh, um, either way. Uh, Barnabas was a leader in the early church. He tra Mark traveled with Paul and Barnabas, and we'll go over this in the book of Acts briefly a little bit. Uh, most importantly, in the next line down, in his later years, Mark worked alongside Peter in Rome. Uh, 1 Peter 5.13 makes reference to Mark. Though Mark is the official author of the, of the Gospel of, Mark, of the book, of the Gospel of Mark, it is very clearly that the source behind the Gospel is Peter. This Gospel could well be called the Gospel according to Peter. Note that the most every event in the Gospel of Mark, Peter is an eyewitness. And the Gospel of Mark is outlined by Peter's sermon in Acts 10, 34-43. Thus, Peter's influence is great. There's no quite in my mind, there's no question, I would imagine that, that your, comment, your, your um, introduction to the New Testament probably also affirms this as well, that the, the source behind the Gospel of Mark is Peter. Okay. Peter didn't write it, Mark did. And Mark may have penned it after Peter's death, I don't think so, but he may have. He may have penned it separate from Peter, whatever. But Peter is the source of the stories in the Gospel of Mark. But since Mark penned it, and not as a scribe, I know it's Mark's the author, as we call author, uh, then we'll attribute this to the Gospel of Mark. I think the Gospel of Mark was li likely written in the, around the year 60. Your, your uh, New Testament introduction will, will grapple with a date there. I don't have us worry too much about dates, uh, uh, ultimately. And that would be about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's widely believed, and I mean almost universally believed, that Mark is the first gospel written. Okay? When they were put in order, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were put in the order that they thought they were written. Matthew being the first, because it has a Jewishness to it. And so it seems to be this Palestinian context. And so Mark has more of a Romanness to it. And it seems to be later. But it seems very apparent that Mark was first and that Matthew and Luke are reading Mark. Okay? Now, Matthew's a disciple. No problem. He's an eyewitness. No problem. He doesn't need to read Mark, but he did. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew, you'll note that every story that's in Matthew that is also in Mark is in the same order that's found in the Gospel of Mark. And every story in Luke that's also in Mark is in the same order as it is in the Gospel of Mark. Matthew and Luke use Mark as an outline. And then Matthew and Luke both add stories. Sometimes Matthew and Luke also add the same stories that's not in Mark, which might indicate that there's another source that Matthew and Luke were both using. They may or may not have been. And then Matthew and Luke also have some independent stories that are not found in Matthew or Luke. But Mark seems to be the source. The next thing is that, that when you find a story in Matthew that's also in Mark, or in Luke that's also in Mark, it's always longer in Mark. Mm -hmm. Matthew and Luke are, are, are shortening the story because you already know it. 
So I'm just giving you a, a briefer version of it. So Matthew's stories are, I'm sorry, Mark's stories are fewer, but they're longer. And then Matthew and Luke are clearly added. I don't think that's really significant or, or, or that, you know, that, that's why when I had to do the reading in, in your textbook, um, I, you skipped a lot of those sections because like, sometimes we get stuck in academia that has no real relevance to our, our day. I, I had a, uh, a side note here, and I don't have a lot, a lot of time for side notes, but um, uh, a wonderful uh, president of, of our seminary, and, and her and I were discussing, um, and she's highly esteemed, um, and, and we, were, we were talking about a course that I was going to do in the Gospel of John, and she says, look, you have nothing in your syllabus on authorship and date of the Gospel of John, and I said, look, I don't want to waste my time on it. And she goes, you have to. I said, why? I said, at the end of the day, I still believe chapter one is, from, is inspired by God. And she goes, chapter two, and it doesn't matter when it was written and who wrote it. And she's like, I guess that's true. I mean, I'm not going to preach a sermon on the authorship of John because my congregation is going to walk away going, I learned a whole bunch of heady stuff today, but I learned nothing about how this is relevant to my life. Right? Or even I learned nothing relevant to understanding the gospel better, so I could pre- I, I learned heady stuff. You're not going to go out and evangelize people and say, John wrote it. It's like, who, who cares? What John? I don't know what John. It doesn't matter. Right. So ultimately, those things aren't, aren't significant. But for us, as far as studying goes, it, 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 there you go. The Gospel of Mark is probably the first one written. I think it was written within about 30 years of the, of the death of Jesus. I also date Matthew and Luke around the year 65, no later than that. The key for us, by the way, is this is that at least one of those Gospels was written before 70. Because what happens in 70, in AD, AD 70? Anybody know? 30 for the death of Jesus, 70. The temple. Jerusalem's destroyed in the temple. Mm-hmm. As long as, as one of the Gospels were written before 70, and it's not essential, but I think it's helpful. As long as one of the Gospels was written while Jews were still in Jerusalem, it attests to the credibility of the Gospel. Because Jews in Jerusalem can go, that's not true, I was there, and that never happened. <laughs> right? Once Jerusalem's destroyed, and the Jews are dispersed again, right, uh, in AD 70, it's harder to gain the credit. It, it's easier now to make up stories about what happened 40 years ago now. Right? It, it gives the gospel writers, hey, I'll, I can make this up, because no one can argue with me, because wow. they're all gone. Mm. So Mark's, the dating of Mark, <laughs> at least Mark, if not Matthew and Luke, is, is important. Liberal scholars or, or critics of the Bible who don't believe in the scriptures, whatever, they want to date it after 70 AD because Jesus says in the Gospels, especially Matthew and Luke, that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And if he says it in the Gospels before, and it's written before it happened, it makes Jesus a prophet. But if you date the Gospels after 70 AD, then you can say Matthew made that up. Jesus never said it. And, and Jesus is not... So Matthew wrote something that happened after it already happened and put it in the mouth of Jesus. So that's kind of why the date of 70 AD and the Gospels being written before or after it's important, at least one of them being before 70 AD. All right, I spent too long on that already. Here we go. All right, Mark chapter 1, verse 1 now. All right, Mark's going to be fun. I'm telling you, this is fun. All right, this is great stuff. Okay, and, and, and what I mean by that is, is we're going to unpack Mark in a way that's going to make the gospel far more alive than what we've ever really noticed before. Mark's going to do stuff, and all the other writers do, you know, Matthew making just kind of like Moses with five sermons. It unpacks it, and it it gives a a deeper sense and meaning to it. Okay, Um, Mark's going to do something that we're going to see here that's going to make this gospel like, whoa, that's awesome. 
the way he's knitting these stories together and weaving this together and pulling a narrative together, this becomes a powerful narrative and a powerful story. But the powerfulness of it is actually deep in the way Marx has structured his gospel and written it and, and, and knit it together that you might not have seen after reading it for 30 or 40 years. It, 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 it takes a little bit of undoing. It, but he meant to do this, and there's no doubt he meant to do it, and we'll, and we'll see that uh, uh, as we proceed. I just lost my TV again. Sorry about that. Um, uh, here we go. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. All right, and I think I said this to you briefly last uh, time that we were talking about Mark 1. Oh, come on. I mistyped something. And that is, I think Mark 1, 1 is a title. <clears throat> the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I think Mark 1, 1 is actually his title. Remember, the gospel didn't title come with the gospel according to Mark. That was added later. So Mark 1, 1 is kind of serving as a title, which is important because if that's the case, then Mark really begins with a quote from the Old Testament, right? Which we looked at a, a little bit last time. That quote from Isaiah, and that is God's coming back to the land. Remember that from, from our last study? All right. The beginning of the gospel, the word gospel is good news, euangelion, the good news of Jesus the Christ, uh, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I think I have this on your notes here. Let me, let's, let's track with that a little bit. Here we go. Um, and let's see. Mark 1, 1 is sort of a title. Uh, this verse states its purpose to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. Everybody see where I'm at? Under purpose? All right. The gospel reaches a climax in Mark 8, 29 with the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer, you're the Christ. And it culminates with the centurion's confession, this man, surely this man was the Son of God. So there's your inclusio. Mark 1, 1 and 15, 39 He's the Son of God. He's the Son of God. Right? Mark 1, 1. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark 15, 39. The centurion says he's the Son of God. Note a centurion, i.e. a Roman, acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God. So the Gospel's gone out to the Romans now, and even they are acknowledging he's the Son of God. All right. Uh, I don't have the thing on here that I, that I wanted to note, and that's this. All right. We have the word uh, um, uh, Gospel, euangelion, and existing in an ancient historical document prior to the time of Mark. And it's a biography of Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus is the adopted son of Julius Caesar and the first empire, emperor of the Roman Empire. Okay? So, so after Caesar, Augustus establishes, you know, beats Octavian, establishes the Roman Empire, and he's the first emperor of Rome. Julius Caesar, his adopted father, was declared to be God after his death. That makes Caesar Augustus a son of the gods. And his biography begins with the gospel or the good news of the birth of Caesar Augustus, a son of the gods. And is it intentional by Mark to say the biography or the good news of the birth of Jesus Christ, the son of God? If it's intentional, you, you can't get more political than this. That's right. You can't, you know, but Caesar might be a son of the gods, but Jesus is the son of the God. Right? And that, that is in your face Rome. I mean, that, it just spills with this, con and I think it's probably legit whether Mark intended it here or not, but I think we need to read the Gospels as in your face Rome. Certainly the book of Revelation is in your face Rome. Right? And by the way, Jesus might be saying, you know, that parable of, of 
hey, whose coin is this? You know, who, who, whose name's on it? Uh, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. Right. That might not be some like, oh, just pay him taxes. It might be all things are God's. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's, nothing. It, it could be this intensely politicalness to a statement, but we'll move on. All right, here we go. Now, the gospel begins, let's see, um, next paragraph down then. Uh, let's see, uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, other goals, uh, other goals above that, uh, second to last paragraph on page six. Uh, the project of Christian faith in the context of suffering and martyrdom to inform Christians undergoing persecution that Jesus taught that such persecutions would come. To encourage Christians in times of trouble and persecution by reminding them that Jesus also suffered and to demonstrate that the purpose and mission of Christ was to serve by death. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came uh, uh, to, to, to set his life as a ransom for many. If I were to summarize the Gospel of Mark's objectives simply, I would note two things. Number one, to show you who Jesus is. And number two, to demonstrate what it means to be a disciple. Okay. In other words, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, here's what Mark's doing. He's saying, I want to show you who Jesus is. He already told us. In verse 1, we the reader know the answer to the, to, to the story, or to the question. Son of God. Who is, he's the Son of God. Right, we know it. But as we read the Gospel, the characters in the Gospel, the Pharisees, the disciples, the demons, the centurion, they're grappling with this question, who is this guy? So as we go through Mark chapter 1, one of the things that we'll notice is the demons know. And it says, verse 24, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. The demons know. Okay? But the disciples don't. Mark 4, I think it's about verse, oh, sorry, dang it. I make a mistake there. Doesn't like it. Mark 4, I think it's verse 35. The disciples get into a boat. A fierce wind comes up on the boat over the sea. The disciples are afraid. Verse 39, um, Jesus rebuked, got up and rebuked the wind and said, Hush, be still. The wind died down. He said to them, verse 40, Why are you afraid? You have no faith. Verse 41, they became very much afraid and said, Who is this? The disciples are figuring it out over time. They don't understand who he is yet. The demons know. The disciples are they're getting there but not yet. We go to Mark chapter 8. The famous uh, the uh, climactic moment with Peter. All right? Um, Mark 8. Um, it says Jesus takes him to Caesarea Philippi. Verse 27. Who do the people say that I am? Remember who is this guy, right? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets. Great. Who do you say that I am? Verse 29. Peter said, you're the Christ. He figured it out, right? He's got it. No. Look at the next verse. He warned them not to tell anyone about him. And he began to say, the Son of Man is going to be suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days rising from the dead. Uh, and he said the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> Jesus, that's not what the Christ is all about. <laughs> You're the Christ. Exactly. And I'm going to go suffer. No, 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 no. That's not what we mean. 
The Christ means you rule from Jerusalem. You are the king of Israel. And the Christ means that the Romans are the bad guys. And you need to punish them and kick them out and establish a sovereign state of Israel. No, I'm going to go die at the hands of the Romans. Uh, Jesus, let me explain something. That's not the way this works. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter is thinking as the world thinks. And Satan's the god of the world. Right? In the world, the way Satan does it, the way the world's kingdom does it, it's power. It's money. It's wealth. It's military. It's not sacrificing on a cross. That's the consequences of the evil empires. That's how they do it, Jesus. Jesus says, no, no, no. This is how I become king. And as we go through the New Testament, what we're going to see is we're called to be kings too. And how do we become kings and queens? By the cross. That's the book of Revelation. He has made us priests and kings to our God and they will reign upon the earth. But how? Through the cross. So the disciples are getting there. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Because if I know my Old Testament pretty well, the wind and the waves obey God. And Jesus is calling the wind and the waves. I wonder who this guy is. By chapter 8, you're the Christ. We've got this figured out. But we have the wrong definition or understanding of Christ. As we go to chapter 9 and chapter 10, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And I'm going to rise from the dead. What's rising from the dead mean? Right? Go, go to Mark chapter 10. Um, we'll look at another example of this. The disciples are still figuring this out. We'll take a break here in just a few minutes. Mark 10. Um, uh, probably somewhere in the middle of the chapter. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, let me make sure I got the right passage. Oh. Drop that on the floor there. It's so much easier. Yeah, uh, it is Mark 10. Uh, Mark 10 of 36. So here we go, a little bit further down. And that's this. Uh, Jesus, uh, 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Mm. He said, well, what, what do you want me to do? He said, well, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. To do what? To become the king. Jesus says, I'm going to die, but they don't understand that. When we get to Jerusalem, Jesus, can I sit on your right and my brother on your left? When Jesus gets to Jerusalem, who's on his left and who's on his right? Thieves. I don't think you really want that, guys. They want to sit on crowns, on thrones, right? And Jesus says, um, look, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup? And cup is a metaphor for suffering. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And baptism is a metaphor for suffering. Or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. He said, sure, we're able. They don't get it. And, he, and Jesus said, the cup I drink, you will drink. You will suffer my suffering. But you still don't know what you're asking for, right? 
But the sin on my right and on my left, verse 40, is not mine to give, but for those to whom it's been prepared. Now look at verse 41. The rest of the disciples became indignant with James and John, which I think is because, darn it, I wanted to ask him that. Right? You got to him first. Okay. And then Jesus calls him and says, look, verse 42. These who recognize as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but this is not the way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to, serve, to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, so first question of the Gospel of Mark, who is Jesus? We the readers know. We're that 30,000 foot view. We can see the whole thing. The disciples, are, the, the demons know. The Pharisees are never going to get it. The disciples get it, but slowly. Only, uh, and by the way, they don't get it until Pentecost. Right? After Jesus rose from the dead, John 2, right? Then the disciples remembered that he was speaking about the temple of his body. Right? Now, the second feature we'll take after a break. So let's, let's take a 10-minute break here. Okay, picking up where we just left off. If I were to summarize the Gospel of Mark, in that last paragraph on page 6. If I were to summarize the Gospel of Mark's objectives, I'd, I know two things to show you who is Jesus and what does it mean to be a disciple. The first point, Jesus is the Son of God. On this point, that note that some in the Gospel are struggling to figure out who Jesus is, especially the disciples. They fail to understand that Jesus must die. They definitely do not understand that Jesus must rise from the dead. That's chapter 9 and chapter 10. Others, especially the demons, seem to know from the beginning who Jesus is. Everybody see where I'm at, top of page 7? The religious leaders grow in their opposition to Jesus as they learn more and more who he is. Let's look at that now, chapters 2, uh, 1 through 3, 6. Mark 2, 1 through 3, 6. And this is going to bring up a point that I make at the bottom of page 7. So let's look at the bottom of page 7 first, first the last paragraph, and then we'll go back up to where we just were. The last paragraph of page 7. Another important factor to keep in mind with Mark and really all the Gospels is that they are not concerned with chronological factors. That is, the Gospels are not concerned in telling their stories of Jesus in chronological order, meaning this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Okay? They were, that was simply not a concern to them. And said so they will group events and their teachings together to make a point. For example, to demonstrate what the cost of discipleship look, looks like, Mark will place the story, uh, this will make sense in a, in a minute. Uh, uh, I'll skip that line now because... Uh, that won't make sense right now until we go further. All right, but here's an example, and the example is going to be Mark 2, verses 1 through, three, through chapter 3, verse 6. What Mark does, he fronts at the beginning of his gospel all the opposition by the Pharisees and religious leaders. So in other words, what we see, what we seem to think happens over time, the religious leaders are growing in their opposition to Jesus to where they want to kill him at the end of the gospels. In Mark's gospel, that all happens at the front. So that by chapter 3, verse 6, it says, The Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians as to how they might destroy him. So by chapter 3, verse 6, they want to kill him. Okay. But note that it's actually growing. Into, you'll see how he, how he does this. In chapter 2, the first story is the hearing of the, par the paralytic that we mentioned already briefly earlier. Right? Jesus says, My son, your sins are forgiven. But note verse 6 now. There were some of the Pharisees. I'll bring it up on the screen. Here we go. 2 verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Note they're reasoning in their hearts. 
i.e. they're not speaking out loud. Mm. And Jesus said, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but, sin, but, but God alone? Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which makes him somebody they ought to think about who he is, because I know what you're thinking. Right? But they don't go that far. What is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or get up and pick up your pallet and walk? And the answer is, your sins are forgiven. Because I could be lying. How do you know that the guy's sins are actually, I mean, I could say, hey, your sins are forgiven. Well, you get to God you know, on judgment day. No, Rob told me my sins were forgiven. Who's Rob? Right? But to say, take up your mat and walk, I have to actually do a miracle because you're a paralytic. That's the harder one. So he starts with the easier one and to prove that I can do the easier one, I'm now going to do the harder one. So, but so that you may know, verse 10, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Uh-huh. Okay? Immediately the people began glorifying God, saying, end of verse 12, we've never seen anything like this. So the first opposition of the Pharisees is thinking in their hearts. They're not speaking out loud. No. Now, they're going to have growing opposition. Jesus passes by Levi, the tax collector, which is probably Matthew. Follow me in verse 14. And he's reclining, verse 15, at the house with tax collectors and sinners. And there were many of them. Verse 16. The scribes of the Pharisees, and remember, not all scribes are Pharisees. So scribes are lawyers, experts in the law. They write the Old Testament law, and therefore they're experts in it. So scribe and, and lawyer would be the same, be the same term. All right, but it's, it's, it's the Old Testament law that they're, that they're experts in. The scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with, with sinners and tax collectors. And they said, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? <laughs> and hearing this, Jesus said to them, uh, I'm sorry, he said to his disciples, or they said to his disciples. So they voice opposition to Jesus, but to the disciples and not to Jesus. So the first opposition is silent in their hearts. Second opposition is to the disciples about Jesus. Right. And Jesus hears them and sa- or finds out and says, it's not the healthy who need, need a physician, but the sick. Verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to Jesus, the hymn is Jesus in verse 18. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? So now they're voicing opposition to Jesus, but it's about the disciples. Right? So the, the, the opposition is increasing, because now they're coming to Jesus with a complaint. But it's not about Jesus. It's about the disciples. <clears throat> Jesus explains, guess what? Uh, sorry, I have new wineskins or new wine, uh, etc. And we can discuss that one later if we, if we need to. Um, and so now, verse 23. As it happened, they were passing on, through the grain field to, uh, on the Sabbath. And they were picking grains, uh, heads of grain. The Pharisees said to Jesus, Why are you doing what's unlawful? Now the opposition is to Jesus about Jesus and the disciples. Right? And he said the Sabbath was not made for man, but man for the Sabbath. The aim was to get to Jesus. That's right. So, so you see how Mark has put all these stories together in an order? They may not have happened in this order. It doesn't matter if they happen in this order. We have no idea. Mark is building opposition of the Pharisees to Jesus from silent to spoken uh, 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 to the disciples, to spoken to Jesus about the disciples, to spoken to Jesus. 
Now in chapter 3, he entered the synagogue, and there was a man with a withered hand, and they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. Now, by the way, note Pharisees in Galilee. That's odd. There are no, Pharisees are protectors of the temple. They're, they're in Jerusalem. They've clearly come up to Galilee because Jesus, they're checking this Jesus guy out. Okay. So we have no idea how long or how far in the ministry of quote-unquote of Jesus that, that, that we are. All right. Uh, it's, Jesus said to them, uh, verse, verse 3, he said to the man, get up and come forward, verse 4, is it lawful to do good or to, to harm in the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees got together with the Herodians, which means what? Pharisees hate Romans. We don't know who the Herodians are, but their names suggest that they're Romanish, right? Um, as to how they might destroy Jesus. And then that's the end. There's, there's no more clash with Jesus and the Pharisees any longer. Whereas in Matthew, it's chapter 23. What are you Pharisees? Okay. So Mark has fronted the gospel with this opposition to Jesus and, the, and the, of the Pharisees so much so that by chapter 3 they want to kill him. Okay, So uh, that's the next point then. Alright, here we go. Uh, let's see. Uh, the second point, this is on the top of page 7 now, it's in bold. About the fourth line down. Uh, discipleship. Discipleship means taking up your cross and following him. Mark 8, 34-38, we'll look at that in a second. This is hard for them to understand because they were accept, expecting a Messiah or a king who would overthrow Rome and establish a Jewish kingdom. This meant they would rule us alongside Jesus. The notion that Jesus was going to die and that they would have to suffer doesn't make sense from this perspective. Jews must get them to understand that the kingdom that he was bringing was built on love and not power. And we just read chapter 10, <coughs> the Gentiles lord over those in authorities, but not so with you. Which meant sacrifice and suffering. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, we can define discipleship in, in Mark, chapter 3, right in the, in the very next passage. Uh, and that is, it says, verse 13, He went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he, wanted him, whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. A disciple in the Gospel of Mark is being with Jesus. Right? Now, we're going to note that a disciple is going to be one who imitates Jesus. Jesus, and that's the, the climactic moment. If you were to memorize something, and I told you that I would end up doing this, beyond Matthew 6, 19-35, it would be Mark 8, 34-38. This is right after Peter says, you're the Christ, and he says, get behind me, Satan, right? He says, he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory with, of his Father and with the holy angels. This is the cost, of, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, of discipleship. And it's the way of cross-bearing. Right? Otherwise, and we'll see this in the book of Revelation. Cross-bearing. Cross right? The way the kingdom of God comes is through the loving, sacrificial death of God's people. That's how the kingdom of God's built. It's through love. And love 
Greater man has no man, greater love has no one than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. In Romans 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus died for his enemies. And so this is the nature, the, the nature of the cross. All right, now, here's the next thing that's this. And I have a description of this down below, but, but we won't look at it now. Mark is going to do what we call sandwiching. And it's very obvious that he's doing this intentionally, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll show it to you as we proceed. So you can start off as skeptical as you want. All right, prove this to me, Rob, that he's really doing this. Whatever. And by the time we're done, I think it'll be pretty apparent. What a sandwich is, and we'll look at a real easy example here, Mark 4 and Mark 5. And Mark 5, uh, Mark 5. What a sandwich is, is Mark's going to tell a story. But in the middle of the story, he's going to interrupt it with another story. Hmm. Then he's going to go back and finish the first story again. And he does this throughout the gospel, over and over and over again. And what happens is, is that the story on the outside, the bread, is to be understood by the peanut butter and jelly, the story, by the, story in the middle. Okay? So the easiest, easiest example of this is Mark 5. Okay. And it's the story of the healing of this little girl. Okay. Mark 5, this is the most obvious example. Okay. So uh, verse 22. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up to Jesus and fell at his feet. He said, my little daughter, note little daughter, is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her and she will get well and live. So he went off with him, and a large cloud was, fall, was following and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years, had endured much at the hands of many physicians, had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd and began behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I'll get well. Immediately the flow of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? The disciples said, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, now we go back to the bread. The bread is the story of the, of the healing of this little girl. Right? The, the meat, the, the middle, the meat or the peanut butter and jelly is the, is the healing of this woman. Now we go back to the first story. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official and said, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Just overhearing what was being spoken, said, said to the synagogue official, don't be afraid, only believe. He allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out. He took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, and he entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately, they were completely astounded. He gave strict orders to, to, that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given to her to eat. All right, the question is, why does he take only Peter, James, and John? And the second question related to that is, 
Why does he kick everybody else out of the house except the mother and father? Believers and non-believers. Because in order to do the miracle, you have to believe. Right? You have to have faith. Okay? Now, note, the two stories are both about women. In both stories, they're called daughter. In both stories, the number 12 is used. The girl's 12 years old. She was bleeding for 12 years. In both stories, they're healed by touching Jesus or Jesus touching them. But both women are unclean. You have a bleeding problem, you're unclean. If you're dead, you're unclean. And in both stories, your faith has made you well. Verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. Jesus' answer to the Father is, and the parents are, stop doubting and believe. The point of it is, in order for the little girl to be healed, you must have faith like the woman. Okay? So there's an example of, of a sandwich, and we'll see more, more examples of this as we proceed. But let's go back a little bit further now to see something else that Mark is doing. Because Mark is taking us upon characters who are trying to discern who Jesus is. So in chapter 4, we have the disciples. By the way, the disciples who do not understand any of his parables, earlier in chapter 4, so that when he tells a parable, they're like, what does that mean? And it says in Mark 4, I think it's verse 33, uh, he was explaining, 34, he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. All right, the next story is about the disciples on a boat, and they're afraid, right? And Jesus calms the storm, and he says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Remember, it's faith that heals the woman, and faith that raises the girl from the dead. You still have no faith. The disciples have no faith. Okay? Became, they, verse 41, they were very much afraid and said, who is this? So what we're going to have is a series of stories where people encounter Jesus and they're afraid. And what do they do? The disciples are afraid and they go, who is this? The next story is about Jesus healing a demoniac all right, and uh, the demoniac, uh, my name is Legion, verse uh, 9, uh, they, they go, the demons go into the pigs, and the pigs run into the sea, which suggests, by the way, he's in a Gentile area of the Sea of Galilee, because there are no pigs in Israel, in, in the Jewish areas, right? So we're in the west, I'm sorry, we're on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, in a region called the Decapolis, uh, Decapolis, ten Roman cities, right? in a Gentile area, the demons run into the pigs, and the pigs go into the sea. That means Jesus just cost us a lot of money. Jesus is really bad for business. We don't like this Jesus guy. The demoniac is ecstatic, right? And look what happens. Uh, they became, verse 15, the very man who had the, had the legion, they became, when they saw him, they became frightened. And what do they do? Verse 17, they implore Jesus to leave. Yep. What do you do when you're, when you're confronted with Jesus and you're afraid? The disciples say, who is this? The Gentiles say, get out of here. Mm -hmm. Right? What <laughs> happens in the next story in chapter 5? The woman is afraid. She touches, now mind you, by the way, she's unclean and she's desperate. She's gone to doctor after doctor after doctor, and they've just taken all her money, and now she has no hope. 
But if you are unclean and you touch someone else, they become unclean. So she needs to stay away. So she goes in a crowd and you know she's bumping into other people. And she touches Jesus. And one of the stories in the gospel is when you touch Jesus, the unclean become clean. He doesn't become unclean. Uncleanness is transfers, but not to Jesus. His cleanness transfers. Right? And she becomes clean. But now Jesus is like, wait a minute, who touched me? And the woman's like, oh, I'm in trouble. Think about it, right? In this culture, she is in big trouble. All right? And she became afraid. Uh, and it says, um, verse, uh, where are we at now? Verse 33. But the woman, fearing and trembling, what does she do? She falls down and tells the whole truth. By the way, this is a, a theme in the Gospels, especially Luke. Women are very prominent in the Gospel of Luke. The men don't get it, but the women always do. <laughs> they always do. There's no exceptions where women don't get it. Except maybe Mary and Martha, and, and you know, Mary's doing the busy work, and, or Martha's doing the busy work, and Mary's at the feet of Jesus. Which makes Mar Mary a disciple, by the way. Because uh, that's what disciples are, they're sitting at the feet of Jesus. All right. Otherwise, the women get it, and the men don't. So, these, so you see how Mark's weaving these narratives. And again, they may or may not have happened in this chronological order. We have no idea. The point of it is, Mark obviously put them in this order for a reason. And it might be they happen in this order, but it might be, I'm showing you what happens when you encounter Jesus and you're afraid, and how you react. And the answer is, the woman has faith. Now go to chapter 6, because remember the story is faith. And this is going to be an, a, a difficult verse, but it'll, it'll make sense, I, think, I hope, for us in a minute. He comes to his hometown, Mark 6, verse 1. Verse 2, the Sabbath came, he began to teach, and they were astonished. Where does he get these things? Verse 3, is it not the carpenter, the son of Mary, uh, and, and the brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? Verse uh, 4, Jesus says, a prophet's not without honor in his hometown, except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, in his own household. Verse 5, he could do no miracle there. Why not? Look at the next verse. He wanted the, at their unbelief. It wasn't that he was unable to. He's unwilling to. The reason why he kicked everybody out of the house in chapter 5 was because you are laughing at me when I say the girl's not dead, she's asleep. <coughs> right? You clearly don't believe. Get out. Only Peter, James, and John. You come along. Mom and Dad, you can come along. Stop doubting and believe. Faith in Jesus becomes their, it's, it's covenant blessings. If you want to receive the blessings, you must enter the covenant. Now, there are exceptions, but that's the principle. Yeah. Okay, the disciples he let go in with him, are we saying at that point in time they had faith, or had they gotten to the point where they now knew who he was? They had enough faith that they could come along would be the way I'd say it. Okay, yeah. they still didn't realize. Uh, yeah, it's not till eight where, they, where they're getting it right. The disciples are going to grow in this understanding. Uh, all right. But they just had faith. He can do this. We've seen it before. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. We saw him call the storm. Right? So, so sure, we can see this. Yeah, exactly. So then just a quick question. No, absolutely. As far as the demons realized he was Jesus yes. right away, is that because that was a spirit-to-spirit -spirit type connection versus uh, the physical that we couldn't? I, I think we'd have, to, I, I guess I'd say we'd have difficulty answering the question because the text doesn't answer it. Okay. So we can. The question, if you're listening on on, on the podcast, is uh, how do the demons know who he is already? Right. 
in, in what way? And the text never says. We just know that they already know. Okay. Whether and we could speculate all we want, but that's okay. all we would be doing. Speculating. Okay. Another yeah. small sidebar. Yeah, please. For him asking that question, who touched me? Yeah. Explain that to a youth. How do you say that he knows everything? Oh, because uh, but Jesus doesn't know the hour of his return, so he doesn't know everything. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a, that's a greater dilemma. Because right. some of those, some of those demons that he was referring to have been some of those that got kicked out of heaven. Uh, okay, one, let, let, let's finish this question first. Uh, all right, one second. Okay, here we go. All right, the question is, Jesus says, who touched me? Yet the Bible says Jesus knows everything. Mm-hmm. And the answer is, Jesus in his divine nature knows everything. <coughs> Jesus in his humanity doesn't. Mm-hmm. As a man, he's limited. Philippians 2, right? That, that he became human taking the very nature of a man, made himself nothing, you know, the kenosis, emptying himself. In his humanity, Jesus is not omnipresent, eternal, all-knowing, or all-powerful. In, in, in the flesh. Okay. God the Son is unchanging, right? I, I, Lord, I, you know, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his eternal nature is unchanging. So what we have to understand is God the Son became the man Jesus. The man Jesus is also God the Son, right? It's one person with two natures. In his human nature, he voluntarily restricted access to his divine knowledge. He restricted access to his divine power, right? So the Son of God is eternal and omnipresent and all-knowing. But the man Jesus is saying, I'm not relying upon that, right? That's why Hebrews says he was tempted in all things as we are because he, 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 he embodied the humanness now. So, in his humanity, he didn't know the hour of his return. Now, the resurrected Jesus, who's reunited with his divine nature, now he knows. But we're saying in his humanity, he knew that someone had touched him. That's correct. Because power went out from him. But you're saying he didn't have the power to know who had touched him. He didn't access the prerogatives of his divine nature, if I can say it that way, so that he can know who it was. The power that went out from him was the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, by the way. When Jesus does miracles, it's through the Spirit. Because Remember, the Spirit fell upon him at, at his baptism. So it's, he's not doing miracles because he's the Son of God. He's doing miracles as the Son of God, empowered by the Spirit. Make sense? So it is because he's the Son of God, but not, I mean, not by that nature. All right, go back to your question, Kevin. No, I just, just came. Yeah. He was worried about them pork chops. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about the the, uh, the host of angels that was kicked out of heaven. Okay. Look at them in a demon in a demon demonic form. Right. That very possibly could have known who Jesus was. Yeah, but I, I, Christ was. We're just gonna have to speculate as to how did they know from eternity? The, what they, right? This is something God talked. We have no idea of doing. We just always have to be careful about speculating about like that. Yeah. yeah sure. Another question. No, when no problem. He had said, caught him. Said Satan, get behind me. Yeah. Okay. Um, is there significance to him saying that? Um, yes, well, certainly. The question is: Is there significance to him saying Satan, get behind me? There's two possibilities. And it's probably a little bit of a both and in this one. One is that that thought of yours, Peter, that I am not going to suffer is Satan's idea. Right? We know that from the, from the temptations of, of the devil. Bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus came to get all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan was offering him a plan where he didn't have to suffer. So Peter's saying, no, you're not going to have to suffer. That, that's from the devil. Okay. Um, or it could have simply been 
um, thinking along the lines that the devil thinks. Is it the devil influencing your thought, or is that just devil-like thinking? It, it, it's both. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, I think it's probably. I think it's probably both. Okay. I, yeah, I think it's the devil. No, I wonder because you just say, hey, that's not the way it's going to happen. That's right. You actually say Satan, get behind me. That's pretty strong. Yeah, words. that's extremely strong words. I, I think that's the devil's way of thinking of things, and the devil's influencing you. Remember, remember in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you. So the betrayals of, of, of Peter were satanically uh, um, uh, influenced, if I can say it that way. So, uh, excellent. Okay, now let's keep looking at this idea of sandwiching them. Luke's gonna, uh, Mark's going to tell a story, interrupt it, and then go back to it. And the story in the middle, the interruption, serves as the framework. So as we go to chapter 6, and this is not as, this is not as blatant a one, all right? but it's the one I referenced here at the bottom of the notes about, about, uh, about discipleship. In Mark 6, verse 7, Jesus sends the disciples out. And we'll look at that story in, in Luke's account later on. Uh, uh, he sends the disciples out. He says, Look, don't take a tunic. When you enter your house, verse 10, stay in that house. Uh, they went out and preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons. The next story is John the Baptist's beheading. Yeah. But the story begins with, hey, I'm going to send you guys out. It ends with the disciples coming back and reporting to Jesus about all that they did. But in the middle is John the Baptist's beheading. Right? It's, and now, it, it's subtle because, look, verse 30, verse 30, the apostles gathered together with Jesus and reported him all that they had done and taught. You can see how he's going back to the original story, even though it only gets one verse. The middle of it is John the Baptist's beheading. Well, why would that be in the middle? Because the answer is, discipleship is going to cost you your head. So, wow. Yeah. Now, now, that's not as apparent. And you can be skeptical on that, but as we keep going, we're going to see more and more and more and more and more of this. It's like, ah, that, that, that's probably what's going on. Okay. Now let's go. Uh, this is one of my favorite ones. All right. And, and I, don't, I don't have a lot of time because I have a couple more I want to show you too. All right. Mark chapter 6. Now verse uh, uh, 33. Jesus feeds 5,000. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus feeds 4,000. I'm sorry, folks. Why are you telling us twice? Okay, let, let, he did it twice. I'm not you don't, yeah. The point of the miracle is I can multiply bread and feed multitudes. Yeah. Why tell me the same story later on even though it's... Uh, what's the point? Okay. Is it the same story? It, it's, uh, it's, kind of, no, it's two stories. One's 5,000, one's 4,000. Yeah. Right, now, yeah. go back to Mark 6. While he was ashore, I'll bring it up on the screen in case you're following along there. Uh, uh, six, that's verse 34 or so. Here we go. It was already quite, verse 35, it was already quite late. And the disciples said, you know, this place is desolate. It's already really late. Send the people away that they can go to the villages and buy something to eat. Remember, there's no refrigeration. You've got to buy food that day before, before the market's closed. And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. I'm sorry, but I've taught this passage for years and years and years, and I, you just gloss over that verse. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean you give them something to eat? Right. Jesus! Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's the key. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to show you what I mean. You give them something to eat. And the disciples said, look, we're going to go spend 200 days' wage, at the night I said days' wage, the days wages, on bread and give them something to eat. She said, okay, how many loaves do you have? They said, well, we have um, five and two fish. He said, okay, 
He had them all sit down on groups of on green. That's what Moses did when he fed the Israelites. Okay, so there's Jesus being, being Moses again, even in Mark's gospel. Verse 40, they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. That's Exodus language. He took the, fo- the five loaves and the two fish and he blessed it. Uh, and then he uh, divided up uh, the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. Verse 43, they picked up 12 full baskets of broken pieces and also of the fish. And there are 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Next question. Why did he make extra? To show that I can not only feed these, but there's plenty still left. Okay. But note the very fact that he made extra is one thing, but the fact that Mark tells us that he made extra is something else because it raises the question that we now ask, why did he make extra? Yeah. Which Mark doesn't appear to answer right now. So Mark intentionally seems to be raising a question that he's not answering. And note, they picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces. The next question is, not only did he make extra, and does Mark tell us that he made extra, but why did he tell us that it was 12 baskets? Is there something significant about 12 baskets, not 11 or 13 or 16 or 4? 12. We already know 12 is important, don't we? Because 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel. And 12 is the number of the disciples. It's the number for the people of God. We already should know 12 is important. And the fact that Mark's mentioning it, it's not some passing reference. He's not doing that. It's something insignificant. All right, so we're going to... When he does something, he does it abundantly. abundantly. Uh, okay, that, there you go. He's doing it for abundantly. No problem. All right, now we skip to chapter 8. Now note chapter 7 is in the middle. If these two stories, which are clearly parallel, are the bread... Chapter 7 is the peanut butter and jelly, or the tuna fish, or the ham, or whatever you want. Okay, whatever. All right. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, another group of crowds around Jesus says, I feel compassion for the people, verse 2. Verse 3, he says, If I send them away home to their, to their hung, hungry to their homes, they'll faint on their way, and they've come a great distance. The disciples said, Well, where will anyone find enough bread in this desolate, desolate place? And you stop and think, are you guys just like that dumb or something? Because if I'm not mistaken, a chapter and a half earlier, all you need is five loaves of bread and two fish, and we're good. But the disciples are like, where are we going to find all the bread? Find this enough bread? Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. He said, okay, tell the people to sit down on the grass. He gave thanks and broke it. Started serving the disciples. They had a few small fish. He blessed them, ordered them to be served as well. Verse 8. They ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven baskets full of broken pieces of bread of what was left over. Another question. Why did he make extra? Next question. Why did Mark tell us that he made extra? Next question. Why did he tell us that he made seven baskets? Is that important? Seven We're stuck. We know seven's important. We know twelve's important. We still don't know the answer. The Pharisees began to grumble about Jesus. Verse 10. He went to the boat. The Pharisees began to grumble about Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven. He just fed 5,000 and 4,000, and now you want a sign from heaven. <laughs> See how Mark's, how the narrative is drawing these things out? Okay. Um, leaving them, he embarked and went away to the other side. And the other side is going to be important, and I'll explain what that means in a, in a little bit. Verse 14, they forgot to take bread. <laughs> yeah, you know, something's going on. Right? They forgot to take bread, and they didn't have more than one loaf in the boat. Now, those two statements seem to contradict one another. 
You either forgot to take bread or you have one loaf. Which one is it? <laughs> Don't answer the question just yet. All right, here we go. He gave them orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven or the word yeast, which has a reference to bread, of the Pharisees. Now, leaven or yeast is a, is a, a figure of speech for evil influences. Paul will say a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough in 1 Corinthians 5. A little evil influence in you is going to corrupt everyone. That's why you have to expel this brother from, from the church, right? In, in, in 1 Corinthians 5. So watch out for the, the leaven of the Pharisees and the, and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. They're thinking, Jesus is telling us watch out for the Pharisees because we've got to take bread. Right? They're, they're connecting what Jesus is saying. All right. And Jesus said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? All right, stop for a second. When Jesus says, do you not see or understand, it's because he just told a parable. Right? That, that, that's Mark 4. He tells parables. Do you not see or do you understand? See, understand, throughout Mark, throughout Mark chapter 4. Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? which he quotes in Mark 4 when he told a parable. And do you not remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets, see, we know it's important he's bringing it back up. That's why Mark told us. How many baskets full of broken pieces have you picked up? They said 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said seven. And he said to them, do you not, do you not yet understand? And we go, no. But we know the 12, and we know the seven's important. There's something about a, a parable going on, because do you not see or understand? There's a deeper meaning to what I just did. In other words, I acted out a parable. I didn't tell you a parable. I acted it out. The feeding of the multitudes is a, maybe a literal event, but there's also a parable going on, a greater, a deeper significance. And it begins with, you give them something to eat. That's what, I was, that's what I kept raising my hand for. <laughs> and the answer is, I want to go back to you got 12 baskets to feed the people of Israel. And you got seven baskets to feed the nations, because seven's the number for the world. Or perfection, or of the, all the nations, right? Perfection, totality. The first event, Mark 6, was on the, gent, on, the Gal, on the Jewish side of the lake. Notice he crossed the other side of the lake. In Mark 8, he's on the other side of the lake amongst Gentiles. He feeds 5,000 Israelites with five loaves of bread, because Moses is in five books. Right? And they pick up 12 baskets of broken bread. Now you have enough leftovers to feed Israel. Not literally, because the bread's going to go bad. But I have shown you how to feed Israel. And the answer is, I'm the bread. And I have shown you how to feed the nations, and I've given you seven baskets. Not literally, because it's going to go bad. <clears throat> so did they have a loaf of bread in the boat or not? They had him. They had him. So he was they forgot to take bread. But they have Jesus. Mm -hmm. He did have him bring it too. He, that's John's gospel, but nonetheless, it's still the same. He did say it, right? That's right. All right. So in other words, they forgot to take bread. Like, oh, we forgot to take bread. But Mark's like, but they have a loaf. That's Mark telling us they have a loaf. That's the disciples going, but he's, he's saying that because we forgot to take bread. Do you not yet see or understand? I'm the bread. Okay, now, what happens in chapter 7? Jesus has a dispute with the Pharisees and religious leaders. And here's what he does. 
Mark 7. Skip down the middle of the passage. Verse 15. Nothing outside a man can defile him, but only what goes in. Verse 18. Are you so lacking understanding also? That's what he says when he tells a parable. Do you not yet understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him? Okay, stop for a second. Gentiles are unclean because they eat unclean food. That'll be be the story in the book of Acts. But if Jesus says what goes into a man does not defile him, then he's saying Gentiles are no longer unclean. Right? And look at the next verse. Verse 19. Because it doesn't go into the heart, but into a stomach and it's eliminated, thus he declared all foods clean. And if he declared all foods clean, the Gentiles are clean, let's go eat with them. All right. The next story is a story about a woman. He's up in Tyre, verse 24. Tyre is north. It's Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon. It's not Israel. It's Gentile land. Okay? And a Syrophoenician woman, verse 26, a Gentile, Syrophoenician race. She was asking his, uh, Jesus to cast a demon out of his daughter. Jesus said, let the children be satisfied first. For it's not good to take the children's bread, no bread, so we know stories of bread on both sides, Mark 6 and Mark 8, feeding the multitudes. We know, so we see bread again. All right? uh, let the children, um, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. And dogs is a figure of speech for Gentiles in the ancient world, right? Uh, um, this, 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 it's, it's a derogatory way of referring to Gentiles. But she said, Lord, even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone from your daughter. I have come to the house of Israel. We're going to see this in the Gospel of John. And I'm going to send you to the nations. Okay? So this Gentile want something that right now actually is only belonging to Israel or, or, or to the Jewish people or people of God. Oh, we want to say, I'm confused the language. Uh, right. it, it's only for the Israelites. Okay, I don't want you to take food from the Israelites. I just want a crumb. Okay, great. But in the next chapter, he's going to go feed the nations. So in the middle, he's declaring off. So it, that's a really complex sandwich, but it seems to make sense because through all six, seven, and eight, references to bread, Clean, unclean, 12... All right, we, we see it happening. All right, let's look at an easier example now in chapters 11 and 12. Okay? And, and this will kind of be... We'll finish on this. Okay, the next thing about the Gospel of Mark... This, I don't think this is on your notes. I have to look, look at the last paragraph again. Is in the Gospel of Mark... This is very significant. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus never enters Jerusalem until chapter 11. In the Gospel of John... He goes back and forth, Galilee, Jerusalem, Galilee, Jerusalem, Galilee, Jerusalem, at least three times. So that his crucifixion is probably his fourth visit to Jerusalem. So according to John's gospel, he's there often. In Mark's gospel, he's never been to Jerusalem yet. He's only been in Galilee this whole time. Again, so John's gospel, which we'll talk about, is a compliment to Mark. All right? And he's, he's adding in details that Mark's gospel leaves out, no problem. So Jesus has been to, Galilee, has been to Jerusalem many, many, many times. Okay, now note, in Mark chapter 11, it begins with a triumphal entry. Okay? He approaches Bethany and Bethpage, uh, which is on the other side of the, of the hill around the city, around the city of uh, Jerusalem, about two miles away from the city of Jerusalem on the east. Okay. They're throwing cloaks down. Hosanna, verse 9. Blessed is who comes in the name of the Lord. Look at verse 11. Mark 11, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem. He came into the temple 
after looking around and everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Mark is not randomly telling us stuff. But you're like, well, he went to Jerusalem, he went in the temple, and he looked around. And our immediate response is, what did he see? <laughs> right? I mean, if you're going to tell me he went to the temple and looked around, we're going to go, well, what did he see? And Mark says, he left. We don't know what he saw. Well, then why would you tell us that? Because you're making us ask this question. When Mark tells us something, he wants us to ask these questions because he's going to answer it. Okay, so let's keep going on. On the next day, verse 12, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at the distance of fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. Now remember, it's, it's April. Right? It's, 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 well, it's March 31st or something like that, right? Whatever it might No, it's probably like April 1st, uh, AD 30. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Here we go. Uh, but he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. But his, and his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem and looked around and then he left. Then he sees a fig tree and curses it. Then he goes to Jerusalem. Is that a sandwich? Maybe. Maybe. Okay, let's see. He entered Jerusalem and entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He would not permit anyone to carry merchandise to the temple. He began to teach them, saying, It's not written, is it not written? My house is a, it will be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the scribes heard this. They began seeking how to destroy him, which we knew that from chapter 3 already. For they were afraid of him, and the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they got out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered up from the roots. There is certainly a, a, a sandwich. He cursed the fig tree. He goes in the t temple. The next day, he sees the fig tree. Right? And look at the fig tree. It's withered up from the roots. Okay? Fig tree, cursing the temple. Fig tree. Fig tree is cursed. Why? No Had no fruits. Had no fruit. He goes in the temple and says, you've made this place a den of robbers. Why is he upset in the temple? There's no fruit. What did Jesus see when he entered the temple and looked around? No fruit. He went to the temple, looked around, saw no fruit. Next day he cursed the fig tree. Next day he goes back into the temple and curses it. Next day they see the fig tree cursed. Right? Now it continues. Have faith in God, says verse 23. No, 22. I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, this mountain, what mountain is he talking about? It's a particular one. It's this mountain. It's the mountain that the temple's on. Be taken up and cast into the sea and doesn't, be doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes what he says is going to happen and will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things which you pray and ask, believe that you've received them, not the role of faith, and they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven will forgive. But if you don't forgive, verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes began to say, what authority are you, are you doing these things? Okay. It's this complex sandwiching of sandwich, bread, or meat, sandwich, meat, sandwich. What was the bread is now the meat. Right? The curse in the fig tree we thought was the bread, but actually it's the meat between him going to Jerusalem and, and looking around and then him coming back and, and cursing the, uh, cleansing the temple. 
right? And then the fig tree becomes the bread for cleansing the temple, and the fig tree is withered. And then the cleansing the temple, and, the, and then he goes back to, it's, it's, it's over and over again. Okay. He's walking out parables. He's, it's, he's enacting a parable. Enacted. This is called an enacted parable. Have, oh, by the way, him overthrowing the manager's tables is an enacted parable. Excuse me. <clears throat> Meaning, we often refer to it as the cleansing of the temple. I think that's wrong. I think most scholars would agree that that's wrong. He's not cleansing the temple. When Jesus walks out, what do they do? They pick the tables back up and continue, continue conducting business. He didn't cleanse it. What he did is it's an active parable. In other words, I'm demonstrating what's going to happen to this temple. It's going to be destroyed. In chapter 13, he's going to describe the destruction of the temple. What happens in chapter 12? Well, well I'm going to skip to the end just for the sake of time. Uh, the, end of, the end of 12. Right, I'm going to give you an alternative interpretation and you can work with it if you want and you can leave it be if you want and we'll go, we'll go on our day. Uh, here we go. All right. Uh, let's see, verse 40, uh, 30, 38. He was teaching, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and puts on at the banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake make long prayers. These receive greater condemnation. Now I skipped over the parable at the beginning of 12. If we have time, we'll go back to it. <clears throat> he sat down opposite the treasury, verse 41. Began observing how the people were putting money in the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came in and put two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. He called to his disciples and said to them, I say to you, this poor widow had put in more than all the contributors of the treasury. For they put out of her surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, and she had to live on the next chapter then begins to say, Behold, look at the teacher of these, at these buildings and the stones. And Jesus said, um, Do you see, verse 2, these great buildings, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. He went to Jerusalem and he looked around, but he saw no fruit. He cursed the fig tree, which is a symbol of Israel. And he says, You're going to be destroyed. He overthrows many changes table, saying, This is what's going to happen to this temple because of what you're doing. And what are they doing? They're devouring widows' houses. Right? Verse 30, verse 40. And for a prayer's sake, make lengthy prayers. And then a widow comes and puts in two small copper coins. All right, the four coins that she had do not add up to a penny. They're worth less than a penny. Meaning the four coins that she had, she cannot buy a loaf of bread with. But the Pharisees are demanding that she tithe on them. They're devouring widows' houses. You see, I think the common interpretation of this is that Jesus is commending this woman for her faithfulness and giving. I think Jesus is condemning the Pharisees for making her give. She shouldn't be giving. She doesn't have enough to give. She doesn't have enough to eat. You're de- All right. Earlier in chapter 12, or chapter 11, I, I, we glossed over it, when he overthrows the money changer's tables, he says, he quotes Jeremiah 7 and says... My house should be called a house of prayer for... Actually, Isaiah, I'm trying to think of the other part. Um, you've made this a den of robbers. A den is where robbers go to hide. 
He's not as upset with what you're doing in the temple. He will be in John's gospel, but not in Mark. In Mark's gospel, he's upset because of what you're doing out there. You are making lengthy prayers and all these shows, and yet you're devouring widows' houses. This temple was supposed to be for, for the nations. Remember the nations, right? There we go. For the nations, and you've made a den of rock. This is where you go to hide. In Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah says the temple will be destroyed. Don't go telling everyone, we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Three times. That was their way of saying, this is God's house, and God will never let his house be destroyed. That was a Jewish conviction that the temple could not be destroyed because God dwelt there and he would never let it be destroyed. Jeremiah says, you're doing all these sins and injustices. I'm telling you right now, God's going to bring destruction on this temple because you've made a den of robbers. Jesus quotes Jeremiah, right? The analogy, by the way, for those of you pastors will be, don't say, I go to church, I go to church, I go to church, and then live like hell Monday through Saturday. It's what you do out there that matters. It's not as much what you do in here. Mm -hmm. What you do in here is the result of what you did out there. It's what we do in here that equips us to do what we do out there. But Jesus is concerned about justice and righteousness and fairness and equity. Okay? Now, he goes on in chapter 13 to say then that the temple will be destroyed. Okay? In chapter 12, very, very briefly here, the parable that we skipped over, Remember, chapter 11 ended with, what authority do you have to do these things? You just made chaos in the temple, which indicates this sign that it's going to be destroyed, which they may or may not have figured that out. Mark certainly knows and wants his readers to know that's what it means. What authority do you have to do these things? And he says, well, let me ask you a question. Was John's baptism from God or from man? And they're like, well, we don't know what to say, because if we say it was from man, the, the Jews are going to be upset with us because they liked John the Baptist. Uh, if we say it was from God, you know, um, then we're, we're, you know, we have to prove of him because John the Baptist kind of, you know, we don't know. So, so Jesus says, okay, guess what? I'm not going to answer you either. But chapter 12, he tells a parable, which is Jesus' answer to their question. What authority do you have to do these things? Which Mark, I know it's Mark intentionally puts the parable next. And the parable in chapter 12 is about a man who owns a vineyard. Right? And we're thinking Isaiah 5. God is the, God's the, uh, Israel is my vineyard. I, I planted this vineyard, and, and I'm, the, I'm the God who, who, you know, who, who planted it. So the owner of the vineyard is God. And he built a wine press around it, and a vat. He built a vat under it, and a wine press. He, he built a vineyard, and he expected to get grapes and wine. And so he, at harvest time, verse 2, he sent out to a slave to get to his vine growers, the people who worked the vine, who worked the lamb, and said, uh, give me some of the produce. And they took him and beat him and sent them away empty-handed. He sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so on with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. And we know who that is. It's Jesus, right? And the vine grower said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. The vineyard is Israel, and it's the land, and it's the temple. So we see this growing theme in Mark saying, I, which John's going to tell us now, I'm the temple of God. 
This temple is not, no longer necessary. Remember, the temple is where God dwells, right? In the Old Testament, as long as it was, a, you know, the tabernacle of Moses, the temple of Solomon, right, and then later Herod's temple, it meant God's presence is restricted to one place. It can't be God's eternal goal to have a physical building. Because Jesus is God in flesh, he, by definition, becomes the temple of God, and wherever he is, God's temple is. But it's still in one place. Because Jesus was only in one place at one time. With the coming of the Spirit, the temple of God now begins to fill the earth. As God's people take his temple presence to the rest of the earth. So this house is no longer necessary. But it's going to fall under judgment because you have not done justice in particular, you have not even made this a house of prayer for the nations. That make sense? All right. So, discipleship means to follow Jesus, to be with Jesus, means to follow Jesus, and ultimately means the way of cross-bearing in Mark's gospel. That's, that's one of the key themes in the gospel of Mark is, what does it mean to be a disciple? And it means to imitate Jesus by taking up your cross and following him. The other element in the gospel of Mark is, who is Jesus? The, the demons know from the beginning... The women get it. The disciples are figuring it out over time. But even at the end of the gospel, they still don't really get it. It's not until Acts uh, that they ultimately understand. Mark's other feature then is he's weaving a narrative by blocking things together, whether it's the Pharisees' opposition to Jesus, right, or this imagery of the temple and the destruction of the temple. Um, and then he's using sandwiches. Well, tell a story and interrupt it. Go back and finish it. The story in the middle highlights the key theme. The reason why the, the fig tree was, was, was withered was because it had no fruit. That's what he went around. When he looked, went into Jerusalem and looked around, he saw no fruit. All right? Questions, comments, thoughts? Anything else here? All right. And, and really, more, it seems like this goes on and on. If each chapter, it stops as if it, uh, it starts as if it never stopped. And he did this, and he did yeah. this, and he did this. I've never noticed that until I read it this time. Oh, okay. Right. You just read it, just read it without looking at it as chapters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So but chapter breaks can be problematic. Yeah. Luke's gospel chapter breaks, chapter breaks are going to be really problematic, and we'll look at Luke next time, and, and, we'll, and we'll see how Luke has done it. The problem with Luke is, is that some of the sections in Luke are like four chapters long, so you kind of have to put chapter breaks in there. Excuse me. Well, as we look at Luke's gospel, we'll note. He clearly wants you to link this with what just followed or what just preceded or, or things like that um, also. So uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see that. So it, it takes a little bit more skill to, to, to learn to see that. But the danger then could be, you know, our typical Bible study, I'm going to read one chapter today because that's my devotional. Not a bad habit, but just be aware that you might be separating that chapter from what just happened or what's about to happen, and it might not make sense unless you look at it in light of the whole. So, all right, Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. And we just pray that you'll help us to be disciples of Jesus Christ who learn what it means to truly bear our crosses and follow you. Who truly learn to love our neighbors um, and even our enemies as you have loved us. Uh, who truly fulfill the, 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 the law of Christ. Uh, loving the Lord our God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. We thank you for the gift of, of life and the gift of hope and the gift of peace that you have given to us. And we pray, Lord, that you'll bless our lives and our ministries and all that we do. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.